Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In the field of economic history, the causes and consequences of the Industrial Revolution loom large. Competing theories point to the role of institutions, scientific achievements, and bourgeois ideas. Setting aside the origins of industrialization, another open question concerns the mechanisms by which modern economic growth emerged. To delve into that question, I've brought on Walker Hanlon, whose academic work suggests the engineering profession played a key role. Walker is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at Northwestern University. Among his thought-provoking works in economic history is a recent working paper, The Rise of the Engineer, Inventing the Professional Inventor During the Industrial Revolution. Walker, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. You open the paper with quotes from Joel Moker and Alfred North Whitehead, whose work raises questions about how methods of invention changed uh, during the Industrial Revolution. We've had other sorts of bursts of progress in the past, they were never sustained. So what you found was that the engineer is a key factor. Yeah, so the, the context here, right, is that we, we sort of know looking back in history that, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, economic growth was sporadic and, uh, and you know, uh, it was only after the Industrial Revolution that we experienced sustained, you know, economic growth of the kind that we enjoy today, right, which is what provides us with all of these wonderful devices and, and benefits that, that we enjoy, right, and so something fundamental happened during the Industrial Revolution, and that I think is one of the biggest mysteries of economic history, is trying to understand what happened, and, and you know, we, we kind of know it has to be about technology, because that's what really is the long-run engine for growth. And what this paper is about is looking inside that, that system through which technology was being developed and realizing that it was changing in an important way. And, and specifically what was going on is that there was this emerging group of people who were professional, they became like professional inventors and designers and they called themselves engineers. And so we're familiar with this group today, um, but you know, we, we, what I do is I really look back and think about where this group came from and when exactly they emerged and what that meant for sort of pushing us onto this path of modern economic growth. How does one even begin to figure out like who these people are? I mean, there have always been people who've sort of invented things and tinkered around, but you're talking about something different here. Yeah, that's the real challenge in the paper, right? Is, you know, we know that engineering work had been done before the industrial revolution, right? What's, what's the challenge is understanding, you know, whether it changed at this time. And, you know, so in the paper, I, I use a variety of different sources. So one source is, is the patent data where you can just see a group of people who suddenly start calling themselves this new occupation that, that doesn't really exist in the patent data before 1760. But I also look in other, you know, at other types of engineering, like civil engineering. And I think, you know, there you can really see if you look at the individuals involved and in the types of projects they're doing, you can really see this process changing. So, for example, in the first half of the 18th century, 
you know, the largest infrastructure project built in Britain was a bridge in London that was built by somebody who'd never built a bridge before. Right? And so this is a project that's the, the most expensive project this government is going to do for 50 years, and they have someone who's not experienced. And you know, if you look in the beginning of the 19th century, by that time, that just never would have happened because the people who are doing this kind of work are now experienced people. They've been trained through apprenticeships. They have you know, worked as assistants, and, and it's a developed profession rather than just trying to have to pick out smart people and hope that they, that they do things right. Now, you couldn't just access a database of professions. You had to play detective a little bit to figure this out. What did that process look like? Yeah, exactly. And, but that's what makes my job interesting, right? That's what makes research so exciting is it's, it's, a, it's a mystery to try to figure out how to, you know, identify what's going on. And, you know, so like in the patent data, you can see that there's no engineers at the beginning of the 18th century. And then around 1760, they start to appear. And then by the early 19th century, certainly by the middle of the 19th century, like they're a fundamental part of the system. Now, you could worry that they're just people are just changing what they call themselves. Right. The words don't matter. Now, we think, you know, that occupations and words that describe them have meaning. Right. But you need to go further than that. And so you need you know, what I do with the, with the data is just show that these people actually look different, right? They're just fundamentally different. They're more productive, you know, at generating new innovations. They do it in different ways. They work with more co-authors. And so they just look fundamentally different. And that tells you that something really is changing. It's not just about terminology. And so what you described there is you, is you're looking at how people describe themselves, but also sort of kind of what they produced as a way of determining what they were. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I also do it a, an alternative way, which is we can rely on historians and we can see what historians call these people. And if you do, if you look at it that way, you see the same pattern, right? Historians just, you know, there's, a, there's just an, an emergence of people that they call engineers that, that didn't exist before, which isn't because people weren't doing engineering work. It was because that there wasn't a group of people for whom that was their primary defining feature of their occupation. Are these the same people that when I read about the Industrial Revolution, particularly in Great Britain, are these the people that they call tinkerers or is this something different? So this is really something different. So at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you have these machines and things like textiles that are primarily done by tinkerers. Now there's early engineers like James Watt, you know, but a lot of the technologies are, are things that are done by tinkerers. And those tinkerers, a lot of them are, they're primarily like gonna run a business that say produces textiles and they're tinkering with their machines to make them better and inventing useful you know, modifications. That's just different than an engineer who, you know, by the early 19th century, is somebody whose primary you know, occupation is inventing stuff and they invent lots of different stuff. And they typically don't wanna run those businesses that use their technologies. They wanna sell them or they wanna form a partnership like Watt did with Bolton, with someone who knows how to run a business. Right? Because a lot of them are not great at running businesses. What they're great at is inventing new things. And so they become professionals at that. So who are some of the classic examples? It would, uh, you mentioned James Watt would be one. Yeah. So, you know, James Watt is a, is a great example. He was probably the most famous. You know, he has this, this big bust in Westminster Abbey uh, that sort of, you know, showed how important engineers had become. But there's other guys like Joseph Brahma, for example, invented lots of different stuff. And he starts out as a carpenter. And so he kind of is a tinkerer at the beginning, but then he begins specializing in, you know, just inventing different stuff. And he invents all sorts of different things, you know, a beer engine, which is like a tap. He invents a, a press. He 
invents you know some uh, some stuff to 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 make money uh uh you know more difficult to to uh, falsify so you know you have people like him and then and then as the generations go on you know you have people who are instead of coming into engineering from something else they're being trained as engineers and so you get people like Henry Maudsley uh who's inventing a wide range of different stuff um so those are those are sort of a few of the people that that are interesting to look up and, and did this, at least initially, was this primarily a phenomenon that we saw in Britain? Yeah, so what's really interesting about this is uh, this type of engineering, which at the beginning of it, they called civil engineering because they wanted to differentiate this from a pre-existing occupation, which was military engineers. Like this was really a British phenomenon. And I think it was related to the fact that Britain had this booming private market that could support people who were professional inventors. And, and these guys who invented stuff, they could, they could sell their inventions or they could make money off them in other ways. You know, and, and so in the paper, I compare it to France a little bit. France had great engineers, but they were really you know, military or public infrastructure type engineers. And they worked on the things that the state cared about. And so they weren't out there inventing the kinds of mechanical devices that were driving economic growth in Britain. So it, you know, this, new type of engineering, the civil engineering, which is, you know, using their terminology rather than ours, this was really a, a British phenomenon, at least at the beginning. Looking at causality, did the engineers drive economic growth or did a more market-oriented society allow people to be engineers? Or was it all kind of happening at the same time? It's, it's all happening at the same time. I and mean, this is all part of a, an, you know, it's an endogenous part of this evolving economic system. And so there's lots of work about, you know, what may have set off the industrial revolution. Yeah. You know, this, it wasn't that someone invented engineering and then the industrial revolution happened. But the industrial revolution is going on. And one of the things it's doing is opening up the opportunities for people to start to specialize in invention. And what that did is it, it was a mechanism through which economic growth started to accelerate, right? And it may not have been the only mechanism, but it was one of the mechanisms uh, at least I are, would argue, through which economic growth accelerated, you know, that emerged endogenously due to other factors, which include, you know, the ability to, I think, crucially to monetize their inventions and to do it without becoming business owners, but through other means that allowed them to continue to be inventors. The subject of why the Industrial Revolution happened, when it happened, where it happened, hardly an understudied area, and there are multiple theories and I think you're suggesting that yours is not a sort of a separate theory, but it actually, you know, it actually syncs nicely with some with some other ideas. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like there's been great work about, you know, the importance of institutions and property rights in, in you know, making this uh, in an environment in which you could be an inventor. There's, uh, you know, work by my colleague Joel Mokier on the importance of, you know, the enlightenment culture and, and, uh, and uh, these, you know, this mix of craft skills. So I think all of these things are going on, right? And what I'm doing is I'm sort of looking at, you know, at opening up the black box and trying to think about how did this stuff translate in, into economic growth? So what exactly was the mechanism through which that occurred, right? And of course, that economic growth is generated by new technologies. Those new technologies are invented by somebody. And it turns out that there's this group that's inventing these technologies that wasn't there before. Uh, and so it kind of ties these existing theories uh, you know, into the outcomes that we're interested in. So you describe a key factor 
in the Industrial Revolution as the invention of a new method of invention, the new method being the engineer. A more recent example might be the industrial lab, or maybe AI will be the next one as some sort of super research assistant. How do you think about these new methods of invention? Yeah, I think of these as like, these are like paradigm shifts in how invention happens. And I think this is an early one where it, you sort of had this specialization in these, these people who specialized in it. And that was different than what happened before. And the, you know, the industrial lab, the research university, and maybe AI, uh, you know, I think these are all you know, sort of candidates for other paradigm shifts that, that act as mechanisms through which we either accelerate economic growth or maybe we just sustain it where it would have slowed down otherwise. Does the paper emphasize the role of innovation over scientific discovery? Because engineers aren't discovering new theories, they're innovating. Yeah, so I think, you know, a defining feature of engineering, which sets it apart from some people that were doing things that looked like engineering before, is that they're, they're practical people, right? They want to produce things that are going to have economic, uh, you know, consequences in part because they want to benefit, they want to, you know, make money off of that stuff. But they are fulfilling an interesting role. So I have another paper where I look at people who are both publishing in scientific journals and patenting new technologies. And if you look at who's doing that, the engineers are the key bridge between those two worlds, right? Now they're not, you know, coming up with new mathematical theorems, but they're connecting science uh, to technology, you know, through this period. Uh, it's, it's still a, 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 you know, a weak connection in the first half of the 19th century. It becomes stronger over time, but they are a crucial bridge between those two worlds. I once read that someone described research about the Industrial Revolution as a well-squeezed orange. Uh, but yet, the, yeah, I seem to constantly be coming across lots of new research about that topic. There's still plenty of juice in there. Sort of where is the scholarship about what drove the Industrial Revolution? It sounds like there's, that, it's, that it's broadening, that there's no monocausal explanation, that it just seems to be a very rich, multi-layered explanation on all those fronts. Yeah, I think that there are explanations that seem more or less convincing. There's sort of a set that I think most uh, economic historians would say, you know, probably contributed things like having good property rights institutions, uh, having this sort of culture that allowed change to take place, um, having a good apprenticeship system uh, that, you know, meant that you had lots of skilled mechanics who could actually implement these ideas. Uh, so I think, think there's still very active debate on that, and I'm sure that that debate will go on uh, indefinitely. But, I, you know, we're learning things here and there that are helping us put the pieces together and sort of limit the set of ideas that I think are compelling. Uh, are there ideas that were once in vogue that have sort of been de-emphasized or set aside? That's a good question. Uh, I, you know... I'm not quite sure about that. I would say like maybe if, if there's any idea that I think is maybe a little bit less emphasized, it's that, you know, just a pure resource endowment story that I think there is reason to believe that having coal, for example, mattered. But, you know, Britain is now clearly that uh, I think Britain wasn't the only place that had coal and it wasn't the only place that had coal in a, you know, in a location where it could be utilized. And so, you know, maybe that story is a little bit less compelling than it was in the past, although it's probably still part of the, the overall picture. Even though this is historical economic research, are there public policy lessons we can draw from the paper? Well, you know, I think in a way it, 
you know, it's not really a policy relevant lesson, but in a sense, I think we, we should be thinking hard about the process through which innovation occurs and not just like, you know, tinkering with the process as we know it, but that there may be sort of deep shifts in how that's happened and how, you know, how it will happen going forward, just like there have been deep shifts uh, in, you know, how we use lots of other technologies uh, or do lots of other things. Um, you know, whether like AI is the next shift, I don't know, right? That's a very hard thing to forecast, but, you know, we can at least start to think about, you know, what are the characteristics we would need for this kind of paradigm shift to happen and, and uh, you know, whether there's things we might be able to do to facilitate that. My guest today has been Walker Hanlon, author of The Rise of the Engineer. Walker, thanks for coming on the podcast. That's great. Thanks a lot for having me. 